Thank you, first of all, for the opportunity to be here. It is an honor, and it's really fun to see these 40-year celebrations happening and individual programs looking back on their successes and how they sort of grew where they were planted. So it's great to be here. I also br so I bring you greetings from the NCCPA uh, wearing that hat, and like most program directors, I wear more than one hat. And so I also bring you greetings from the University of Washington, from Maddox Northwest, and from Dick Smith, our founder, who said especially wanting to thank all of you uh, and, and recalling some good memories. So while uh, you've heard a quantitative uh, presentation and a qualitative presentation, this is going to be sort of like an editorial preservation presentation. Sort of Ruth's uh, observations on what's going on. Uh, I can't possibly include everybody or every name of what's happening, but I sort of wanted to talk about the trends. Uh, I don't think I can duplicate the pig story, but I'll try to have a few stories mixed in here. So why are we worried about this? Well, I think everybody's more and more aware, and even more aware as time going on, goes on, that health workforce is a global solution. And I guess it really should say, and that PAs are part of the answer, part of the, part of the, part of the uh, solution. So whether we're thinking about the brain drain in Africa or whether we're thinking about shortages here or the change in distribution, uh, different countries are of their own uh, choice beginning to look at PAs and as, as American PA organizations, each of, our, each of our organizations has tried to figure out whether that's our problem, whether we should address it. There's a lot of controversy about this. As Justine said, though, the conversation really increases the vitality in our own profession because it causes us to look back at some of the things we've done. And it's also fascinating that if, as you talk to people around the world, one of the things they, they say, uh, just in quick summary before I begin, is uh, as we move ahead, it's taken you 40 years to get to where you are. And it's fun to talk about that. But in, and you had a lot of experiences. Some worked and some didn't. If we learn from you, could we just kind of collapse the 40 years into 10 years and get through some of this conflict? And uh, so I think that's sort of a good goal because there are things that have worked and there are things that haven't and there are also some sort of, sort of trends that are fascinating. So when we think about, here are just some examples of PAs internationally and of course you know that we weren't the first, that the felchers that Peter, Peter the Great had with his army were really some of the first people that had this role. None of these were exactly the same role as we had here. You can read through them. A lot of people are not aware that in the 70s when many of the African countries went through civil war, all of the European doctors left and returned to Europe leaving vacuums in healthcare. And so there were PA-like programs that were started. They're not really PAs, but they're very similar. And they're fascinating to learn about, and the same with South America. So if you look at, at Guyana, for example, you'll see, uh, actually they happen to be called medics is there because they came out of work that Dick Smith did. But there are, around the world, Fitzmullen wrote an article about non-physician providers or mid-level providers in sub-Saharan Africa a couple of years ago. And so there's some uh, fascinating examples to think, where did this come from and where is it all going? So what's in a name? A favorite topic for a place like Yale. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and a favorite topic actually for a place like the medics program. And I regret, uh, Patrick, that I forgot to put Child Health Associates on here. So, uh, but I think one of the things we've sort of all learned is that we probably can't control this and different countries in the world are gonna come to their own conclusions. In fact, if you're in the UK and you read the advertising for WantEd, you'll see that there's a lot of jobs for PAs. 
But what those are are personal assistants, actually, that are sort of like secretaries that work for you. So PAs are probably not necessarily the right word there either. So uh, we can get hung up on that. So the founder of the medics program, Dick Smith, who was one of the first medical directors for the Peace Corps, went on to do a lot of work in, in creating health professions around the world uh, that were mid-level-like. And he created sort of a, a list of how you might actually do that. So I've sort of uh, changed that, uh, taken this list, and I wanted to share it with you. Because it's interesting to see, apply this list and see as we look at some of the models around the world, what worked and what hasn't. And that's even true here. So sometimes we've seen countries, for example, or a particular hospital in a country, or a particular state in a country that decided, based on maybe one person's point of view, that it would be good to create the PA profession. But they didn't do the needs assessment. They didn't check with anybody else. They just thought about what was their, their own little need they had, and that didn't work. It also hasn't worked when there hasn't been community collaboration. So we've heard some examples here today of some of the history and really involving the community and also the, the practitioners, the physicians, the nurses, whatever. So it's about stakeholders a lot of times. Uh, most programs that if, if you look at that have been successful have, well, I guess we could call competency-based training, but basically we heard a number of great stories, whether it was talking about PAs being the data collectors that did something and that person who does that in just a short period of time compared to somebody who isn't thinking in an organized way, um, but thinking about what do you really want people to do and how do you train them for that and not waste time on other things, especially when we've got limited resources and how do you deal with that. Another feature is the idea of thinking, what are you going to do with these people? What do you need them for? And in some places, it turns out that it's not primary care, which is what we thought. And primary care might be a political hot potato. In some places, it's surgery. I'm going to have a list of other things, other examples here. But to me, the one I've highlighted most is the idea of the receptive framework. And you heard Blair talk about this uh, this morning, which is really the idea that it isn't just, in his case, he was talking about the legal piece of it. But if you really are going to create a safety net for a new profession as it, as it evolves, you have to think not just the easiest thing is a training program and the curriculum, and you can sort of make it up as you go along, as we all know. Uh, but you have to think, how does this fit into the political system? How does it fit into the legal system? How does it fit into the reimbursement system? And you have to start those from the very beginning. You don't just start the program and then later on say, oh, by the way, we should have thought whatever. And so you see the PAs, for example, in the UK right now, they're sort of stalled out. We have American PAs over there. There are three PA programs. One has just been shot down. Another is a couple of new ones are starting. But the problem is they can't figure out where they fit in the regulatory structure. Do they fit under allied health? Do they fit under the physicians, which would take longer? Right now they're functioning under the delegatory model, but nobody can figure it out because that's not what they did to start with, was thinking about that. So think of this receptive framework as you think about starting any sort of new ideas. This happens to be uh, the medic series that Dick used to train health workers. Uh, how many countries, Justine? Many, 20 or 30 around the world. So how did we get into this? How did people around the world start looking at PAs? Well, you wouldn't be surprised to know it's probably because of individual PAs. So you had examples of military deployment. So in many countries in the world, as part of our military actions, there were PAs who were in the military who were deployed not just to take care of our own soldiers, but they had community service obligations. They, of their own choice, waited out in the community, and because we can't stop from doing that, they did health promotion activities. People began to be aware of them. They were very visible. 
The military at various times has really promoted PAs as a way of, of talking about the good health care within their own system. There have been PAs in the Peace Corps. There are many places in the world where the PAs have been the, the medical officers for a region. PAs went overseas as part of religious missions, and all this is in countries where there, there's no law that allows us to do this. But informally, particularly because the regulatory framework is not well established everywhere in the world necessarily, or because PAs were employed by corporations or other entities. They could go overseas and technically practice because they had this, this relationship that allowed them to do that. Educational programs and projects. Many people, especially people that are PA faculty people, have been overseas working on training other kinds of health providers, whether it's teaching pelvic exams to uh, medical students in Saudi Arabia because it's not okay to teach it there by Saudi Arabian medical educators. There's an interesting one. So we've been out there. We've been visible in epidemics. We've been visible in global emergencies. And the other thing that's happened is a lot of physicians from around the world have trained here in the U.S. And when they've trained here, they've gone back and said, where is my PA? I can't function without this PA. It really made things work better. And that's actually a, a, a real mobilizing force in many countries around the world. And I'm constantly meeting people who say that. Why can't you help us get this here faster than it's coming? So again, all about the individual PAs. And they will tell me the stories of who it was. They'll know where they went to school. They'll know all about their training. And they want to know why is this not happening fast enough. So we had some issues ourselves here to begin with as this, as this was uh, sort of taking on. Uh, and I think PAs ourselves had some trouble coming to terms with this. So on the one hand, of course we believe that PAs are a model that could work anywhere in the world. But there were some of us who also said, but you know, we've got enough problems at home to deal with. There's only so much we can take on. So if PA programs were sending students, for example, overseas to international rotations, then did that mean they weren't willing to go to a community health center in their, in their uh, neighboring state because they'd spent all their money traveling to wherever it was? So there was a lot of debate among ourselves about what our priorities were and could we do everything. There also was some, um, I'll uh, use my words carefully, jealousy, hostility, anxiety, whatever, about there were, and, and some myths, some sort of urban myths about the, the individuals that were doing some of this work. Americans that were going over, faculty members, PA program leaders, and somehow there became this, this thinking that these people were making huge amount of money as consultants. I've never met anybody that that was the case, and in fact, most people that were doing this either paid their own way or paid their expenses to do it, but they were doing it for the same reason that we all are promoting PAs generally, because it was the right thing to do. And it took a while for that to sort of shake out. We, we still are not big enough in our profession yet that we can't get past some of the personality issues, and I know Patrick would cheer me on in saying that. <laughs> So, so we had to sort of come to terms with this ourselves. And then there was the issue of can we control this? And meaning, can we control the name? Can we control the curriculum? Can we control what these people do? Will they want to come back here? Uh, do they see this a way as a backdoor into medical practice in, in the US? And were they really going to be looking for reciprocity? 
Well, it turns out our regulatory structure in the United States is so difficult that even if there were everything, a centralized curriculum, international exam, which would be impossible to make, each state has its own regulatory requirements. And so that's probably not worth spending a lot of time on. But we had to, we had to get there. And I think some of the conversation was very good. Different organizations got involved in this. And essentially, I think both AAPA and PAEA kind of said, there's only so much we can do. We're happy to host people. We're happy to visit them, have them visit. But we can't make it a big, right, Patrick? This can't be our big agenda item. And Justine, having been president of, of uh, PAEA, would, I'm sure, agree with me. So figuring out what the right thing to do was. In the meantime, uh, the NCCPA felt like it had a little different issue here, which was we were being asked questions about certification. By the way, not should we, take an, should we have an international certifying exam, but how could we help these countries that are wanting to create some sort of certifying exam process and teach them about how to do test item banks, teach them what we did right, what we did wrong, and really help them with the regulatory, the receptive framework part of this. So as a result, we've hosted a number of meetings, and I've traveled around a lot to talk about uh, promoting the PA profession broadly. So that's, that's sort of the background on this. So if we were to ask Dick Smith back in his days of thinking about how do you do something internationally, he would have said this, which is kind of where we, I think, have gotten to, which is that it's okay for countries to adapt this idea to what makes sense for them and not to adopt our model uh, with a stencil, essentially, spray painted on the wall, but that you have to let countries make it be their own choice. And then that's when it gets interesting. So how did PA programs and how did people get involved in this? Well, first of all, there were a lot of initial contacts. People met people and they went overseas to talk. Now, uh, Elaine is a good example, I know of this, because she uh, at one point spent time in the UK talking about PAs in surgery early on. So that's an example to that, of that. There were people from ministries of health and large hospitals that came to the US to visit. And they typically went to sort of the obvious PA programs. I know they came here, they came to GW, they came to Duke, they came to Medex, and they wanted to hear about, tell us what you're doing. Uh, and then they invited us over. And so a number of us went, hundreds of people at various times representing different organizations, all pretty much, I think, with the same, with the same message and doing a great job. And then the other thing that sort of happened all along the line was that in a number of institutions there were global health things that were going on anyway. And so because we are now more broadly viewed within our own medical schools or institutions, we were invited along for the conversation. Now sometimes we liked that and sometimes we didn't. And uh, so, so uh, I know you've had some opportunities to be in Africa and uh, anyway we had a number of, of things that we had to sort of work was, was that good or bad. So here are just some examples of those. So this is actually, some, a lot of these pictures are just of myself, not because this is about me, but because I have this slide set about where I've been. So uh, this happens to be in China, but, and I picked it because of how bright colored it is, but it could be anywhere in the world, and it could have been Elaine talking in, in the UK about surgeons, it could have been Justine talking in Mozambique, it could have been Rod Hooker. Anyway, we started doing these talks. And then we had people come to the US to visit. And then we went to visit places. This happens to be at a rural health center, remote rural health center in Australia. And here we are. This is Justine, actually, in Seattle, speaking Portuguese with a number of people working on a, clinic, on a project to redefine the entire curriculum for 
the PA-like people in Mozambique, who, by the way, have the coolest name. It's much cooler than any of our names. And their name is Technicos. So think about that. It, doesn't it serve a way of the future? Anyway. And then, then there became a chance for us to participate in international meetings. So this is an association of medical educators in Europe, and it's myself and Janet Lathrop talking about physician PA teams. This is a meeting with the uh, in South Africa with two deans at the University of Cape Town. This is a meeting that a number of us participated in, International Workforce Collaborative. There are a number of meetings that are going on internationally that are talking about who are the people that should provide medical care, and they're quite broad-minded conversations. This is a meeting in South Africa, and here you see David Ferringer from Kentucky, and the person in the orange tie is Phil Begg from the University of Wolverhampton in the UK first PA program in the UK, and the person to the left is a, a person with the Department of Health in, uh, in South Africa. And what it all came down to, I'm reminded of, of uh, Mary Ann and, and all the conversations she's had with people. A lot of it was about meeting with people and policymakers one-on-one. -on -one. This happens to be uh, Warren Snowden, who is the Minister of, of uh, Health Affairs for Rural Australia, Health Affairs for Rural and Remote Australia, and Aboriginal Health. And you can imagine what the conversation was. So he wanted to know, how could this happen? Can you prove to me that if we train PAs, they'll actually end up where you want them to be, not working in the cities? And so working on that was coming along. So here were some early projects. The Netherlands uh, had the first PA programs overseas in, in Europe. And they were, there are four there. And they really are designed to train people for their large hospitals, training employees that already work there. Taiwan. Uh, trained a number of nurses who actually, very few of whom practiced in PAs, as PAs. And then PA programs began having these international student rotations, which uh, was also a subject of conversation about whether that was an appropriate use of PA student time. But this is happening over the last 10 or 15 years. So then there were a series of pilot projects. And it's quite fun, if you ever want to read about these, there are written reports of all these. So you only have to go to the country and Google PA pilot project evaluation. The United Kingdom, anybody in this group was, has participated in a pilot? Yeah, so, so they, they are fascinating. They usually were conducted by the Ministry of Health, right? And they paid the salaries of the PAs. And the fascinating thing, first of all, you'll notice they're all Commonwealth countries or formerly Commonwealth countries. So they're all English-speaking countries, so uh, that is a limitation. But they actually learn from each other. So they actually talk to each other. So the people, as they were doing one project in the UK, it was ambulatory and emergency medicine. Scotland continued from that. Ontario and Canada had an interesting pilot, which was really about IMGs. It turned out not really to be about PAs. It had over 65 people, and about 45 of them were international medical graduates. And that's really what they were testing, but, and it was emergency medicine. Queensland, Australia, rural and remote health, but also cardiology in an urban setting. South Australia, surgery role, and New Zealand is just has an inpatient surgical experience, really more of a hospice program. And each of those, funded by the Ministry of Health, very well funded for evaluation. And so suddenly some literature and some evidence beginning to come out about PAs that actually reflects quite interestingly on ourselves. What a lot of these pilots say is that 
The PAs aren't a full substitute for a position. Well, we probably mostly would agree with that because of the roles they put them in. But really what they brought to the mix was they made it more efficient and they were the brokers of communication among the people that worked in them. Now that's not too surprising for us. And those of us who are educators love to hear that. But uh, it really was about the role they played and the relationships that they had is really what made this work. And the other thing that made it work was the relationship between the physician and the PA. If that worked, it worked well. And if it didn't work so well, it didn't work so well. Now we all know that, but it's fun to see it in the literature. And it's fun to see it from people who aren't us looking at it, but from international evaluators. So this, these happen to be uh, the pilot, the people that were in the pilot in Australia, as well as the people that are in the, two, in the PA programs in Australia. So uh, the gentleman in the, in the front here on the left who looks a little bit like, like Richard Gere is actually Richard Murray, who's the dean of, of uh, James Cook University. Next to him is Al Ford, who is a, was a former clinical coordinator at Utah. And then there's a, the first PAs that were there, and then the person here on the far, the far left who you can see best is Alex Clairefont, who has now at UC, gone back to UC Davis. So this was, this was uh, Al and all the women in that pilot, all the people in that pilot actually turned out to be women, which was interesting. So then I wanted to just show you quickly through some of these new programs. This, was, this is at Birmingham, University of Birmingham, and the person at the far end is Jim Parle, who's the doc, who was the physician champion for that. And sort of next to him, you can barely see him, is David Coons, who's, many of you know, who's done international stuff. So Birmingham and Wolverhampton started about the same time. Uh, and one of the American faculty that was there is a woman in the blue sweater, who's Teresa Johnson, who's worked at a couple of programs, uh, one, um, one in Florida and one in North Carolina. This is Joel Gray, who is not the short Joel Gray, the dancer, but a tall Joel Gray, an American PA who's the head of the PA program uh, at St. George's University in London. And interestingly enough, he got hired for this job, had never been a faculty member before in his life, and, and in some ways has done some, one of the best jobs, really great guy. Uh, and this is in Australia, this is the University of Queensland in uh, Brisbane. And then these are, uh, the, the two guys sitting in the front are in the very first class at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, who will graduate on June 17th. So that's pretty exciting. And you see Al Ford there, so. So why did, why did some institutions or why did some states want to do this? And, and what I'm hoping you mostly get are sort of the range of things. So we talked about the Netherlands, Queensland, South Australia, New Zealand is interesting because it's a small country uh, and it's a little bit like Connecticut. You could sort of do all the things that's self-contained and you could actually make some change. And they're really looking at, at roles of a, a mixed kind of roles. It turns out that of the physicians they train in, in New Zealand, 60% of them take jobs in Australia. So you'd think they could do something about that, but anyway. Um, and then here are some things that weren't pilots. So you, in South Africa, it's clearly for rural regional hospitals. And by the way, when I saw this, I thought rural regional hospitals, I'm thinking Washington State, you know, 20 beds, you know, whatever. No, we're talking 300 beds, but still rural and remote without any physicians there. Uh, Ghana has two models. Well, we know that it's good to have more than one model. One was to upgrade health workers and one was a generic program related to a four-year college. Uh, George 
uh, Washington University, not the PA program, but the Department of Emergency Medicine is working with Saudi Arabia. British Columbia, which still can't decide whether it wants PAs or not, does know why they would want them. Interesting thing about Canada is that of several of the Canadian provinces, you would think they would all agree the Canadian provinces, no, 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 no. They all have to have their own world and their own identity, and their regulation of, of physicians is accomplished through a college of physicians and surgeons, and it turns out you have to have a license if you're a medical student. Your license starts the moment you enter medical school, so to send PA students there, even for rotations, they would have to be licensed, and that licensure doesn't exist. So extra bumps in the road, you wouldn't think. And it's interesting that China has lots of doctors of various types, but the one unmet need they have is dealing with the healthcare problems of migrant workers who are not the usual migrant workers that we think here, but people migrating from small rural communities in to serve the huge uh, Nike tennis shoe factories and the problems that they're having. They all lived in very concentrated areas and nobody's caring about their health and think about the healthcare problems that would go with that. So here's some more reasons. Ireland is thinking about surgery roles. So what makes, what makes the difference? So it's, it's really fun to me to hear this morning as we sort of relive the start of, of the, this program to see that the story is very similar everywhere you go in the world. And one of the reasons it's similar, well, first of all, there's a need, but they start with some sort of physician champion or champions. And the thing that these individuals have in common is, I say this affectionately, they are all characters. I mean, they are fascinating people to talk to. Uh, they're innovators. They have, um, they can always think of a new way to do things. It's fascinating to talk to them because they'll say, well, we could do this or we could do that, we could do that. They are risk takers. They don't get dragged down by personalities. And so it's fascinating to meet them and you feel like I've known these people forever, whether it's Gene Stead or Dick Smith or these people in this room today. They're all part of the same family. I don't know if they have the same personality type or something, but they're certainly optimists. They don't take no for an answer. They don't, they question authority, is that right? And they're innovative. And, but they know how to work the system, so I'll let you make up the rest of the story. But it's fascinating to see who they are. Um, everybody has benefited from the U.S. experience in that they know about it. They might not want to do it the same way we do it, but they still have benefited from that experience. Almost every time there's a specific problem they're solving, and I've sort of spelled out what some of those problems are. And I think everybody's very interested in globalization. So we're aware that what's happening in one place we probably ought to know about and that there must be something to learn from that. So for example, in, I was fascinated to find out that in Europe they don't have board exams for physicians. You don't take them afterwards, after you graduate. Instead, and there's a reason for this, instead you take an exam before you graduate from your medical school and that makes you a, a physician or a doctor, whatever they're calling you in that particular place, and that's it your certificate or your graduation certificate allows you to practice. So when you talk about creating some sort of board exam for PAs, it pretty much has to be something they would do before they graduate. And, and then to try to standardize it in some way within the country so it's not just coming from one program. So the reason that they don't want to have national board exams for physicians is because of the European community 
any student anywhere in any country can apply to medical school anywhere, and so they don't want the medical schools to be ranked because everybody would then glom onto that particular one and there would be poor distribution across medical schools. So that's, I would have never guessed that. So what are the barriers? We've talked a lot about the physician culture, and I do think it's often the physician culture on the ground level. Uh, and you, Justine was just talking about the, the less sort of authority people have, the more threatened they are by this. Nursing, what can you say? Um, and, it, and this is not necessarily saying anything bad about nursing, actually. It's just that um, nursing, particularly, is often opposed to nurse practitioners as much as they are to nurses, and that was original as, as they are to PAs, and that was part of the original history. I graduated in '76 or '7 or something like that, and I was shocked when I went out to find and went back to my small town hospital that they were harder on my colleague who had gone to nurse practitioner school than they were on me, because they had more of a checklist for her, and she was also sort of crossing over from. She crossed over to the dark side from their point of view, and, and that was really bad. They knew I was a troublemaker, so that they could kind of live with that. So, so in many countries where nurses have had expanded roles, and this is particularly true in Commonwealth countries, where we don't have, there isn't the same culture of BSN nurses and MSN nurses, there still are wonderful three-year nurses who are very well trained and who feel like the fact that there are new roles, whether they're PAs or NPs, demeans what they're doing. It's kind of like, what am I chopped liver sort of argument, you know? Don't you care about all the things I've done? So it's a very different kind of view than we get from nurses now. And it, I think it actually makes sense. The nurse practitioner issue is also interesting uh, because nurse practitioners in most countries, as they did here in the US, and maybe they still do, feel unsupported in general. So uh, we have the benefit of our relationships with physicians, but nurse practitioners often feel disenfranchised around the world. And as, while there may have been nurse practitioner programs that started in some places, they have not always been successful. And one of the reasons is that it seems as though the culturization of some nurse practitioner programs has been to, uh, to demean physicians. So in British Columbia, for example, they have trained, I think, about four cohorts of nurse practitioners, and none of them are employed. And the reason, even though they've been paid for by the government, and the reason is that they go out and they put them in a clinic. The, the government's paying for them, but the first thing they say is to the doctor, I don't need you. Well, that's not a very helpful way to approach anything, if you think about it. So sometimes, in some countries, the view is, well, we've already invested in these NPs. It isn't working. So therefore, we don't need PAs. So reframing the argument to say, maybe if you have both and move them along together, sometimes works in some countries, rather than just one or the other. Junior doctors. We don't have junior doctors in our country, but, in, but most, of, most of Commonwealth countries do. And junior doctors are two kinds of people. They're residents. So some of the concern was in Australia that if we have PAs, we'll take away all their good teaching patients. We've heard that here early on. It doesn't happen, but that was their concern. But it turns out there's actually sort of a status of person that you can actually stay sort of a resident or a junior doctor forever. You never have to leave home if you choose to never leave home. And so that allows you to keep a hospitalist kind of role that's sort of a little lower level. It kind of looks like a PA, actually. 
and particularly in Australia and some other countries, it's unionized. So those unions have really been opposing the creation of PAs. And it took us a while to figure out what they were talking about because we said, why are those residents so worried about it? But it's these junior doctors that feel disenfranchised. And similarly, that's also the case of some international medical graduates. Australia has huge numbers of, of IMGs that, that actually take care of people in their remote communities. It's not so much a problem that the IMGs would be offended to have someone else there. The issue is if you create training programs, the sort of training programs we would have usually used in PA programs to train PAs in rural areas, you couldn't do that because the IMGs are not socialized. You wouldn't want them to be the role models for our PA students that you're trying to familiarize with the US system. And then there's the languages issue, um, that there are still countries doing this in other languages, and our materials are not translatable. Our situations don't move over as easily. So those are some of the barriers. So here's some things just quickly that plus and minus that you see as you work through this. So one is that, that it's a big delay when there's a turnover in government. So this has been the issue in British Columbia and in Queensland. Just when you've got it all straightened out and you think you've talked to everybody in the Ministry of Health and the Minister of Health and you've got them all convinced, then suddenly someone calls an election and that person's gone and another person's in. And sometimes, that's, sometimes you're happy to have the person gone and another person in, but also their entire cabinet. So you have to start all over and rebuild the relationship with the new Minister of Rural and Aboriginal Health. Um, new technology. The University of Queensland is, is sort of experimenting with some online coursework for much of their didactic courses. There are, however, some people that are saying, well, it can't possibly as good, be as good a program as USPA programs because it's not all face-to-face. -face. I don't know. Hard to figure it out. Um, in general, expanded roles for health professionals in general. So in the UK, for example, there was a, a law passed that said that regulated health professions could have prescriptive privileges. Sounds good. Turns out PAs fall under the delegatory model. They haven't decided yet where they want to follow under the regulatory model. So pharmacists, certain kinds of nurses and so forth can prescribe, but PAs can't because they're not regulated. So epidemics. We're having issues of PAs going overseas. Sometimes they're allowed to practice and sometimes they're not. And sometimes that's broken down the door in a good way. We're all concerned about health profession shortages. Uh, Australia, again, is a good example. They were so worried about this because they, well, they have a huge growth of people coming into Australia. So about eight years ago, they decided in one swoop to double the number of medical students in the entire country. Double it all at once. Well, that sounds like a good idea, but think of the hell that that caused. Just think, many of you are educators. Think of the hell that caused with clinical sites. And so it began to be viewed as the medical student tsunami. And everybody in Australia knows what that's about. So first we had not enough, now we have too many. And they're clogging up the system. And, and they've, it's ridiculously expensive to train that many people. And so how do you superimpose PAs on that? Well, you probably still need to for some things, but it's a little harder to make the argument and then there's the growth and expansion of medical schools. And one thing I would challenge you that are interested in research to do is that uh, there is no research, written research or evidence about the roles that PAs play in medical education. So we all know that in our medical schools are the PAs that work there, teach medical students to do all kinds of things, 
And so actually in this tsunami of medical students in Australia, the reality is there are some American PAs that are going there to teach and are teaching clinical skills and so forth. But there's no evidence in our literature. So there's an assignment for somebody to work on. So these are uh, some of the things that we still need to think about. The whole issue of regulation or delegation, which we talked about. Who is going to license or regulate these people? We still haven't solved the problem of international accreditation. The WHO does have an accreditation process for medical schools, and again, not for reciprocity, but sort of <clears throat> some sort of a framework. And the big question that everybody's asking <coughs> is, um, what is the economic practice model? So here in the U.S. we know that you can bill insurance companies, you get paid or you don't get paid, Medicare, Medicaid pays us, we can argue about the percentages. But what happens in British Columbia or Australia where everybody is paid by, their salaries paid by the, by the government, what is the incentive for a doc to have a PA that he or she should supervise unless they get paid a supervisory rate, for example? So a lot of things to think through and understand. <coughs> and the other thing that, that people are asking overseas is, should we market people? They're sort of shocked to know that we marketed ourselves. That's a big, big change. I bet Patrick has had some experience and some of the rest of you that have been presidents, that uh, I say, well, what are you doing to market yourself in the UK or whatever? And it's a foreign idea. Professionals don't, health professionals don't really um, market themselves. I'm talking about the profession, not individual people. <coughs> so now we're getting some more evidence about all of this, and that's going to be one of the benefits of this whole thing. We have proceedings of policy meetings to talk about PAs that weren't available before. We have, there's been lots of opportunities for talking posters, whatever, that have entered the literature. The evaluation reports are especially rich, fun to read. Either that or there's something wrong with me if I think those are fun to read, but they're fun to read about ourselves. First person articles, the first PA here is writing about whatever. The Ministry of Health proposals and implementation documents and the governance and regulatory documents. So we're getting a rich amount of information to help us work through these things. And again, I think our role is to provide technical assistance, but to assume that everyone uh, will make their own choices. So just quickly, to end, three stages of a new idea. And, I, and by visiting different countries, I get to experience all of these. So, and we experienced this to begin with, that at first, this seems like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. And why would you think that people that weren't doctors should do doctor-like things? Well, it turns out the next stage is it's controversial. And we still have some places. We heard some examples where things are still a little bit controversial. It's true for PAs and nurse practitioners sort of parallel. But it's controversial, and some of us would think if we ask Erdine and if we ask uh, Marianne and if we ask Bruce and some people, we'd hear that, you know, actually this controversial part is some of the most fun part, I think. I still think that. Because there's room for some interesting solutions. And very lastly, we get to where we mostly are, but there's still more work to do, and that is where it's obvious. So thank you for your time.